0: Okay, well it's great to be here this morning once again. Let's read from the Book of Romans, shall we? It's a couple of weeks since we looked at it last, but we're in the middle of chapter 8 of the Book of Romans on our tour through the whole book, a year-long odyssey. And uh, last time we spoke about the verses up to verse 17 of Romans chapter 8, so we've got the rest of the chapter to do. And when I looked at it this week, I thought, oh, I Why did I divide it up this way? There is so much in the second half of this chapter, we're not going to get through it all. It's it's incredible. It's one of the most exciting chapters, it seems to me, in the whole Bible. Certainly in the book of Romans, this is the high point for a lot of people as they read through the book. There's lots of important stuff to come after it. The next three chapters are all about uh, what God was doing with the Jews in the Old Testament and how it fits together with non-Jews in the New Testament. And then the last five chapters are all about, okay, if all of this stuff is true, how should you live? And it's very, very important that you look at those two things. But this is the point where the book has just gradually been building up to a sort of climax. And here is the greatest moment of revelation, I guess, in the whole of the book. So we've got a lot to take on this morning. Let's read some of those verses. I'll read about half of them, I think, and we'll come back to the other ones in in a little while later on. So we'll read from verse 18 onwards. And the Apostle Paul says this. He's just been talking about the fact that uh, we are heirs with Christ. There's a great inheritance coming to Christians one of these days. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. So there's this contrast going on thinking. That there's glory for us. Inheritance. Reward. Somewhere in the future. But, ah, we got a bunch of people come back. Amazing. That's great. Hi, girls. Um, but also... Um, He's saying there's suffering now. How does all that fit together? If God wants to give us this inheritance, why do we have to suffer first? And he says this in verse 18. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. <laughs> not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes with us for us with groans that words cannot express. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. We've got some pretty complicated verses there. Um, they explode when you look at them, but it's, it's pretty complicated on first reading, isn't it? So I think that's probably enough to read for the moment. This is the city of Chernihiv in eastern Ukraine, northwest of uh, Kiev. And as you can see, the Russians have done their best to riddle it over the last few months. And uh, people in Chernihiv don't have a great opinion of the Russians. This week, the Russians sent different kinds of bombs into Chernihiv. They were shells that contained messages inside. And people picked them up in the street and started to read them. And um, there are messages exhorting the Ukraine to stop fighting the Russians to give up and just to do the sensible thing and realise it's peace they want and not war. The messages say this. You are trying to get involved in an armed confrontation with federal troops. You are being forced to defend the interests of others, interests of local magnates, leaders, gangs, terrorists. That's Zelensky and his regime. Do not hinder our force. Peace is better than war. All of which is depressive, except that, at the top of the message, on every single printed copy, it says, Citizens of the Chechen Republic. This is not the Chechen Republic. This is Ukraine. So what have they done? just recycled messages that they wrote 20 years ago, the last time they had a war, and they've sent them into Ukraine instead. Now you can imagine people picking up those things and thinking, I am not impressed by this. This is not for me at all. This is them just doing what they always do, and they're just recycling the message. And when a message is not directed to you, it doesn't have much impact on you, does it? And I think the important thing for us to get this morning at Romans 8 is this is all about us. This is not something written for other people, for super saints, for Christians of 2,000 years ago. This is something that applies to us this morning if we're following Jesus. And it's one of the most important messages we'll ever receive to help us make sense of how we're living right now with all the strains and stresses that life brings to us you remember last time we talked a little bit about airplanes. It was the day, uh, the weekend of the air show, and we talked about the fact that uh, the law of gravity keeps trying to keep airplanes down on the ground, hmm. but there are laws of aerodynamics that help to keep it up. And so, when a plane takes off, it stays up there. What it's done is the law, using the laws of aerodynamics, to conquer the force of the law of gravity. It doesn't mean that gravity stops. It's there, all right. And the moment the plane runs out of fuel, woo, down it comes again, because gravity, I'm having that, and rings it down again. But the laws of aerodynamics are powerful enough to keep it up there, and despite the fact that gravity is still operating. And in the spiritual world, says the first half of chapter eight, uh, there is a thing called the law of sin and death that operates in our life, pulls us down, uh, stops us being everything we want to be. Makes us wake up in the middle of the night and and think, why did I do that? Why did I say this? I knew I shouldn't have done it. I went and did it anyway. And the law of sin and death operates in every human life. None of us are perfect. We all give in to temptation from time to time. And this law just wants to keep us down on the ground. But there's another law, the law of the spirit of life in Christ, that's able to raise us up and make us fly live on a completely different level and we talked about that at the start of chapter 8 last time and uh, chapter 8 the first part of it talks about three different things really first of all we talked about when where jesus comes in it's because of his death on the cross and his resurrection and the fact that his life his eternal life is now available to all of us that we're able to have this new life that makes us live on a new level that was a bit for us to do as well and the chapter goes on to say listen uh, you're not controlled by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. And what you've got to do is allow Jesus to give you, you this power inside you, day by day, yielding yourself to him, allowing him to be in control. Therefore, brothers, it says, we have an obligation. There's stuff for us to do as well. We don't produce the power. It's not this wander around all day saying, I must be good, I must be good, I must not do anything wrong, I must not do anything wrong. You know, it's not that way. It's not coming from inside from us. It's coming from him but we still have to let it happen. And there's a third part, which is where the Spirit comes in, and we talked about that at the end. The Spirit makes, it con- makes us conscious of being children of God, of being able to say, Abba, Father. Use the language that a small Jewish child would use in an intimate family setting for his mum and dad. And we come that close to God because the Holy Spirit makes us part of God's family. Well, that's pretty amazing. And uh, we talked also about the fact that one of the things that the Spirit does is that it, ad- makes us, it uh, Spirit makes us adopted into the family of God and he makes us children of God in a new way. You might remember if you were there, we talked about the way it worked in Roman days and this, this whole bunch of people that were um, adopted by the Emperor Hadrian. And we made the point that adoption in the Roman world was not about little tiny babies, childless couples who wanted a baby of their own. It was about adopting adults. People who would take on all of the responsibilities and the rights and the privileges and the honours of the family. That's why Paul starts talking about an inheritance coming to us because that's what adoption was all about. You're adopted into somebody's family and you get everything that's coming to you from them. So that's where we've got to. It's important, I think, that we go on from here into the second half of chapter 8 because it is such important, valuable stuff. Paul talks there about hope, the hope that can keep you going. And uh, here's a picture of hope in action. This is the Deputy Prime Minister of Ukraine. And she's sitting at her desk here and she's just heard that Ukraine has been given candidate status as a, uh, for a, to become a member of the European Economic Community. It's something they've wanted for years. It's uh, something that will give them safety and security and prosperity. And she just can't believe it and she's bathing tears at her desk. Now, this woman... Olga uh, uh, Stefani Shima, if I remember her name rightly, uh, is, 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 is uh, not somebody who has, has gone free from suffering all of her life. Okay, she's got a post office in Kyiv, but earlier this year something happened, and her, that's her family. Her husband, Bogdan, whom you see in the middle of the picture there, was killed as he was helping people to escape from Chernihiv, the city we were speaking about, as a member of the civil defence. And he was shot down by a Russian sniper. That's left her at age 36 with two girls to bring up on her own at the same time as she's Deputy Prime Minister of Ukraine. Not an easy life. And yet there's a picture of hope because she knows she has something to look forward to. She believes that the world is not going to let Ukraine die. And so she looks beyond the war, beyond the suffering to something far greater that's coming. It's not quite the same on the other side. This is Newsweek magazine, and it's talking about the Roman, Ar- the Roman army, the Russian army and the way that they are at the moment. It says this, Putin doesn't motivate the troops, he just sends them. For weeks, Ukraine has been releasing snippets of intercepted conversations between these lowly soldiers and their parents, wives and girlfriends back home. The soldiers complain there's no information and no support. They're confused about the point of the war and its objectives. They're not allowed to take a break from fighting. They're poorly equipped and supplied. There's not enough medicine or doctors. Our command has left, one soldier told his wife, referring to platoon and company commanders who were deserting the units and the battlefield. Well, they didn't leave. They dropped their weapons. It's a myth, the soldier says, that Russians do not let Russians down. They've been let down, and they all know it contrast and Romans 8 is saying God will never let you down you're in the hands of somebody who will keep you absolutely safe right through to the day when you get that inheritance so time we looked at the chapter I think there are three things in the second half of Romans chapter 8 the first is it talks about where we're going soon what's God's plan for the future for this planet when Jesus comes again what's it going to be like what are you going to be like what are I going to be like what's our relationships going to be like so he talks about that and he talks about where we are now Living a life that's not necessarily easy. Living a life that does have suffering and stress and difficulty in it. And yet, looking forward and hope to something far bigger that's going to happening. And third, the bit that we haven't read yet, <laughs> talks about what it all means. If this is all true, what does it actually mean? And that's a glorious bit of Romans 8 at the end of the chapter that we must get to. So, let's look at those three things this morning, just for a few minutes. First of all, where we're going soon. What's going to happen to us? And he talks about the fact that our present offerings are not worth comparing with the glory that <laughs> will be revealed in us. So that's the first thing. We'll see glory revealed not to us, but in us. We'll kind of look at ourselves and think, whoa, wow, there's something going on here. What does that actually mean, glory? Well, in the middle of the, the Second World War in 1942, C.S. Lewis was asked to preach a really important sermon. That's uh, the University Church in Oxford. And it was such an important sermon. It had such great ideas in it that it was printed straight away. And it's still one of the best-known bits of his writing. It was called The Weight of Glory. And the phrase comes from the fact that the New Testament says that God has prepared an exceeding great weight of glory for us. That's the inheritance we're going to get. And he asked in the sermon, well, what exactly is glory? I mean, glory, you tend to think of, I don't know, billy Eilish coming out of the back room where she's been producing music for YouTube and performing on the Pyramid stage at Glastonbury. That is glory. Bukayo Saxon, you know, young boy in a, a, a school in North London, suddenly bursting onto the right wing for Arsenal, scoring lots of goals and missing lots of penalties, but that's another issue. <laughs> and, you know, you tend to think of glory as somebody who's boosted right to the top, who's bigger than everybody else. And it sounds a bit arrogant, doesn't it? I'm going to be in glory one of these days. I, you know, I'm not just a normal human being. I'm going to have one of God's favourites right up there. But, you know, a lot of glory in this world is glory you don't deserve. People get promoted to places that they should never be in. And, you know, when you look at some of the wages that footballers earn or the, 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 the improbable fortunes that people like Elon Musk have made, you think nobody deserves that much. That fame, that credit, and it can get in the way, can't it? You can't walk down the street without somebody asking for your autograph. Phil Foden, the Manchester City player in, uh, in, uh, uh, on the beach this week, uh, fell out with his, his uh, long-term living girlfriend, and they had a blazing row at a club in front of everybody else, just while other people were coming and saying, can you sign my autograph book, Phil? Can they get a selfie? Get away! And he's not exa- he wasn't exactly in the best of spirits when that was happening to him. And glory can be a very artificial kind of thing, can't it? And Lewis said, you know, when I started thinking about glory, I could only think about two things. First is, this, what we've been talking about, fame, status and approval. The second thing is, sometimes it means, he called it luminosity or attractiveness. Sometimes you look at the sunset and you think, wow, that is It's glorious. Or, uh, you know, you look at uh, uh, some flowers growing in some some fantastic arrangement. Wow, that's glorious. That's really amazing. And something that's truly attractive. We use the word glory for that as well, don't we? And Lewis said, when I started thinking about that, that helped me to make a little bit of sense of it. Because when you think about the fame, status, approval thing, we all want approval. And some approval is deserved and other approval is not. From the time we're children, we want people to look at us and approve of us. You know, when you're a small child, look at me, Daddy, look what I can do. Yes, yes, very good, that's wonderful. Look, I can do this as well. Yeah, yeah, that's that's really good. Yeah, I can do this too. And he does all his whole party tricks because he just wants as much approval as he can get. Now, that's natural, that's human, and it's right. We all want to be approved of by somebody who's superior to us. Not so that we can be put above other people, but just so that we can be recognised for everything that we are. And glory, given to us by God, simply means that we will be recognised by our superior, by our Father, as being important, as being valuable. And that's what glory is going to be. There's an old hymn back in the early 1900s called the Glory Song. Oh, that will be glory for me, of course. And it sounds a bit greedy, doesn't it? But when you look at what the words of the verse are saying, you get the point. When all my labours and trials are over, and I am safe on that beautiful shore, Just to be near the dear Lord I adore, will through the ages be glory for me. Just to be there, to have his approval. And Lewis says, you know, the thing about glory that makes it right is when somebody who is our superior gives us his conviction that we're right. I remember when I was at university, we used to have a thing every year called collections very Oxford thing, and you used to have to go and meet about five different members of the college governing body, whom you'd probably never seen before, but they were scary, and your tutor would come in and sit there and read a report on how you were doing. I remember my first collections, I had no idea how I was going to do I was scared stiff. And I remember sitting there, and my, my tutor, completely impassive, poker face, just winning his report, yes, Mr. Allen has actually done quite well. And he called my work trenchant and perspicacious, Nobody had ever used those words about me before. I tell you, I went around and I glow. the whole of the next week. I'm, I, I write things that are trenchant. I'm perspicacious. Woo! Now, it didn't make me big-headed. It didn't make me go up to everybody else in the college. Look, you know what? I'm trenchant. I'm perspicacious. Woo-hoo! You're not. It wasn't like that. It was just, I'd been recognised. I'd put in lots of work. And I had no clue what my, but my tutor thought. And then suddenly I discovered what he really thought of me. That's glory. We get to heaven, and their father looks at us and says, Well done, you good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. What about the other thing, the luminosity thing? Glory is having your father's approval. Glory also is when everything's in its perfect place. I mean, you look at that and you think, wow, the balance of the colours, the way that whole thing's put together. This is just glory, isn't it? This is the way the way it's supposed to look. All too often it isn't. There is one spot in Exeter. They've changed now. They've knocked a few buildings down. But I used to say... If you stood on that spot in, in Exeter with the bus station on one side and the bus station canteen on the other side and some of the grottiest buildings in Exeter just in front of you, including the Civic Centre, the Egg Box, and uh, then Sidwell Street falling down behind you, you were in the one spot in Exeter where it was the ugliest place in the world. It really was. But sometimes you're in a place that just everything looks beautiful and you think, this is what it ought to be like. And the Bible says this is what's going to happen one of these days. The world will be in in sync. Everything will be in the right order, the right coordination. And you will be too. And so glory is when everything is in its perfect place. And you just feel, this is where I belong. This is home. This is what I've been looking for, 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 for all of my life. The book of Ecclesiastes says that God has given us a limited life, but he's also set eternity in our hearts. There's something in us that just wants to be somewhere permanent forever, where everything is right, everything is proper, and it's just the way that we've always dreamt of it being. And we never get there in this life. We had a daughter who, I remember, whenever we took her on holiday when she was little, and the last day of the holiday, you'd always find her in tears. And you'd say, what's the matter, Sandy. What's the, what's the problem? She said, I don't, I, I don't want to go home. I want this holiday to go on forever. And she said, yeah, but don't you want to go home and see your budgie and play with your friends and have your toys again? Yeah, I want that too. <laughs> and she just could never reconcile things. And we know what that's like, don't we? We want what we can't get. We want the eternal. And Lewis said, that's what the weight of glory is all about. Us being in our proper place, recognised by our Father as being worthwhile. So, we'll see glory revealed in us. The second thing is, the whole of creation, it says, will be set free. Set free from what? From bondage to decay. Everything we see around us is fading away bit by bit. There is nothing in this world that lasts forever. And the whole of the the world, we've begun to realise in our own generation, haven't we, is incredibly precarious. We're doing things to the environment that possibly cannot be naturally reversed. You've got to be really careful about the way we treat this planet we live on because it and we are subject to decay all the time. And one of these days, it says, the whole of creation will be set free from its bondage to decay. We'll see creation the way that God planned it would be, without tsunamis, without earthquakes, without natural disasters, without floods in Bangladesh and and famines in Afghanistan. The whole of creation will be working properly. And Paul says this is going to come, and it's going to come through Jesus. In another of his letters, in Colossians, it says, Jesus is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. Jesus' death and resurrection means it is right at the center of everything that God is planning and doing in the universe. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So when Jesus died, that was a tremendous step forward in the history of the universe because a universe that was hurting, that was in pain, that was out of sync, that was going nowhere, that was decaying day by day, was suddenly brought into a, 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 a position where it could change. It could be brought together in Christ, in harmony, in sync, in a way that just proclaimed the glory of God, as this world right now never does. Lots of atheists will say, well, you know, if there is a God who created everything, why would he create a world with so many natural disasters in it? He didn't. That's what Romans 8 is saying. The world was perfect. God saw what he had made and it was good. But sin, our rebellion against God, our attempt to take the planet for ourselves and just hijack it away from God has caused all sorts of problems in the system and it's not working right. It's working, but it's not working right. One of these days it will all be set right again. Thing too. Our adoption will be complete. We've already been adopted into God's family, but we haven't yet got the inheritance that's coming. What does that adoption mean? Well, says Paul, we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons. We'll be uh, adopted as sons into God's family completely, legally and finally. And that means, he says, the redemption of our bodies. Our bodies will be brought, bought back from decay and corruption from the tyranny that sin has over them. I mean, earlier in chapter seven, he's talked about the fact that, you know, if, if, if Christ is in you, then your spirit is alive, but your body is still subject to death and sin. And so we've got this, this contrast going on is that like if we become Christians, spiritually, we're responsive to God, but our body still wants to respond to other stuff, and, oh, no, let's no, just do what we've always done. And that tension is going to go because our bodies will be changed. There will be no key any longer. I won't continue to lose teeth and hair at the rate that I am at the moment. There will be no sin. Our bodies won't drag us into doing the wrong things all the time. There will be no pain. We won't have the, the ills and, and the problems that we do at living in a world that's imperfect. And there will be no death. There will be nothing to fear because we'll be forever in the right place. So, that's what he's saying about where we're going. That's the first bit, and uh, we've taken a long time over it. Let's see how how we can do on the second bit, because I want to get to number three before we finish. It's great. Anyway, second is about where we are now. And uh, this is a life size scale model of yourself. And uh, what does this passage say about us? Well, it says that the, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all have different things that they are doing right now as we live in this world to make it possible for us to get through and survive to the day when that inheritance appears. What's happening? Well, first of all, the Spirit helps us pray effectively. That's verses 26 to 27. The Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And he who searches our hearts, that's God the Father, knows the mind of the Spirit. Because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. The Spirit stands in the middle between us and God the Father. And makes it possible for us to pray in the right way. He interprets our prayers to the Father. So that you might not know what you're supposed to be praying for. You might not know what you should say and what you shouldn't say. But the Spirit Cleans up your prayers, if you like. Makes them ready for the presence of God. He helps you. He inspires you to pray in God's will. To pray for those things that God wants you to pray about. So that you have this living link with the Father and the Spirit is helping to make it possible. I mean, without that, you'd be lost, wouldn't you? You might know that God had saved you and he was going to give you an inheritance one of these days. But, you know, how do you start talking to him? This is a completely new thing. How do you do it? How are you sure you're praying the right thing? How about if, you know, one of these days you get to heaven and uh, your heavenly father says, no, I've got a few things against you. There was a prayer that you prayed back in 1997, which you know, we're not too sure about. You know, you don't want that, do you? And so the spirit is our intercessor with God. He makes it possible for us to pray in a way that god can can, can receive and make sense of he helps us pray but the father's at work as well and he's working out his plan in our lives and it says in verses 29 to 30 what goes on there we know that in all things god works for the good of those who call who, who love him who have been called according to purpose it says those god foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son that he might be the firstborn of many brothers And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. And she says, God is doing all of these things one by one to make you absolutely secure. It's not that he wakes up one morning and says, I think I'll have them in my family. I think I'll make them sons of mine and daughters of mine. And then he wakes up the next day and thinks, no, 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 that was a bad idea. Let's scrub that one and do something different. No, he's working through a plan which he started well before the start of creation. And it involves you. And he calls you to be predestined and called and all the other things right through to being glorified. Now, you might look around the other people who are going to heaven with you this morning and think, "Uh, they don't look that glorified to me yet. (laughs) And you're absolutely right. So what's Paul doing here and saying he glorified? Well, he's using the aorist past tense in Greek. And it's a past tense, although it's still a future thing that's got to happen to us. And he uses that past tense because that was a way of saying in ancient Greek, it's as sure as if it's already happened. So you might not be looking too glorious yet, (laughs) but as far as God's concerned, you're already glorified. He's he's decided it's going to happen, so it will happen. And there is no question about that whatsoever. And so because the Father is working out a plan that he's not going to give up on, you're safe. How about Jesus? Well, what it says here is we start to look like Jesus, don't we? We start to look a bit like Jesus more and more as he works in our lives, and it says that we are being by by, by um, the, the Holy Spirit uh, predestined to be conformed to the likeness of God's Son, so that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. You know, I have four grandchildren uh, in one family near Overton, and they're all different from one another. When they were born as babies, you could see the difference in their personality quite a bit. But, you know, as they grow up, you notice how much like one another they're starting to look. And how they're starting to sort of do and say the same things because they learn from one another too. And you start to see their sisters, all right. You can see the family likeness emerging in them as they grow. And this is what Paul's saying here. That we are now in the same family as Jesus. Oh, we'll never be on the same level as Jesus. But nonetheless... He's the firstborn of many brothers and sisters, if you will, And so as we live under the power of the Holy Spirit, with him helping us communicate through prayer to God, and as God works out this eternal plan that he's not going to give up on, the third thing that happens is that we start to look more and more like Jesus as we start to copy and be influenced by our elder brother. It's brilliant, isn't it? So that's where we are now. We're, we're, we're not perfect and there are strains and there are stresses but we have the holy spirit on our side we have god on our side and we have jesus on our side so that leads us to the final bit doesn't it what does it all mean what does it mean for us what's the takeaway value what's the payoff here well that's where we have to read some more verses okay let's read from verse 30 onwards, shall we what then shall we say in response to this if god is for us who can be against us He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It's God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine, nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, For your sake, space, death, all day long were considered sheep to be slaughtered. No! In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced of neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So what does this all mean? It means that if you are a Christian, you're absolutely totally safe for time and eternity. There is nothing that can destroy us militarily. There's no army that can come against us. If God is for us, who can be against us? Nothing can destroy us because God is on our side. And we can't be destroyed by materially either. Because if God has given us the staggering gift of all in sending his son to die for us on the cross, how shall he not freely with him give us all things, says Paul. If God's already given us that, anything else is just chicken feed, isn't it? And God will just give and give and give. And we will never be destitute. We'll never be without what we need. We will sometimes have to live in poverty. God doesn't give everybody a big bank balance and an Aston Martin. But at the same time, although many of his people have to go through difficulty in, in, in this world, he supplies their needs. You remember that day when Peter said to uh, uh, Jesus, listen, we've given up everything for you. I had a good fishing business. I don't have that any longer. And uh, we've given up everything for you. What do we get out of it? And Jesus said, you don't, you don't lose out. You, you receive much more in this present age and, and even more in the world to come. And he talked about you've left your relations behind, you have a whole new family. You need money, God will supply it. All that you need, everything you need will be supplied by your Heavenly Father from his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. We can't be destroyed materially. And third, we can't be destroyed morally. Who's going to condemn us? Who's going to stand up and say, You, you don't deserve to go to heaven because I have a list of your misdeeds right here and they are pretty spicy. Who's going to do that? You can't do it. Because if God has accepted you in Jesus, if your record has been wiped clean forever, then nobody can destroy you in that way. So we can't be destroyed militarily. Nobody can defeat us. God is for us. Nobody can be against us. We can't be destroyed materially. Nobody can deprive us of the things that we need because God is committed to supply everything we need to do his will here in the world. And third, we can't be destroyed morally. (laughs) Nobody can denounce us because we belong to God. And however sinful we feel and however failing as Christians we are, if we truly belong to him, we're covered by the blood of Jesus. We are seen by God in his perfection and nobody can take that away from us. And so the Apostle Paul says there is nothing that can separate us from the love that Jesus has for us. This is a place that... uh, Anthony and I once visited on holiday in Scotland, it's in a village called Enellen. and uh, as you can see that's the church at the front of the picture there. Enellen is a, 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 a nice little place on the Cowell Peninsula in, in Arnguil. At night especially it looks nice, that's the Cowell Peninsula just outside Enellon. And uh, it's a lovely place to be, great place to be minister if you've got to be a minister. And this guy, uh, was minister there in the early years of the 20th century his name was George Madison and he was born in Glasgow uh, a reasonably well-off family he became a Christian quite early in his life and he was he was a happy Christian he was also a brilliant scholar went to university did really well did a couple of years as an assistant in a church in Edinburgh and then they gave him an Ellen to look after it was like paradise what a brilliant place to come to What more, he was engaged to be married to the most beautiful girl in the world. Well, that was his opinion, anyhow. And then things started to go wrong. Because he started to realise that his sight was failing. And this girl, whom he wanted to marry, who he'd been in love with since he was a child, and she was a child, uh, uh, when he broke the news to her, said, Listen, I'm sorry, I can't spend my life looking after a, a, a blind man. I'm going to have to break the engagement. And Matheson never got married. That was his great disappointment, age 20. And he was a Christian, he believed in the love of God, but he found it hard to keep on going. And 20 years after that incident, when he was 40, when he had 20 years living on his own, now completely blind, became still a great preacher, still somebody whom people honoured and liked. Queen Victoria invited him to preach at Balmoral. He was offered the charge of a church in London, a very prestigious church, but he decided to stay in Ellen because that's where God had called him to. Despite all of that going on at age 40, he found that suddenly his own sister was getting married and she wanted it to be in the church where he was a minister and she wanted him to take the service. And he managed to get through it. But all of that day, his only thoughts were about, well, that should have been me. It could have been me. I could have been that person. And he was just in turmoil. He left the wedding reception, went back to the manse and tried to put his thoughts down on paper. And he turned into a little poem. And uh, the poem took about five minutes to write. He said every time he tried to write poetry the rest of his life, it it took him ages, weeks, you know, and lots of drafts and crossings out and things like this. But this just came, it just kind of flowed out of him. And uh, that's, the words that he wrote were, O love that wilt not let me go, (laughs) I yield my flickering torch to thee. I give thee back the life I owe, that in thine ocean depths its flow may richer, purer be. And he wrote honestly for four verses about all of the difficulties he was going through and the way in which the love of God was the only thing that could sustain him. And he wrote, O joy that seekest me through pain, I cannot close my heart to thee. I trace the rainbow through the rain and feel the promise is not vain. That morn shall tear thee. When you have a hope that you know is certain when you know you have a God who will let you down, when you know that your future is glory, then I consider, says the Apostle Paul, that the uh, present sufferings that we go through are not worth comparing with the glory that's coming to us. Let's just pray together for a second, shall we? Heavenly Father, we know that one of these days, because we trust in you, we're going somewhere brilliant. It's not just going to be a world that we've never known before, with golden streets and, and uh, an alien environment. It's going to be like this. It's going to be your creation to the max. We're going to see this universe, the way you designed it, for the very first time ever. And we're going to see glory revealed in us. Sometimes it's hard to believe that because nothing seems to change. This world seems to stay the same. All that happens is that the headlines in the newspapers get more and more horrific as we go through the months. But we know that this creation, which is subject to decay right now, is one of these days going to burst into glory. And it will do so because Jesus won the victory by dying on the cross for us. And we'll be in glory with him everything will be right in your universe. And so as we go through all of the difficulties and the disappointments and the frustrations uh, and the puzzles that life throws at us day by day, we're conscious that we have a hope that goes beyond the end of the war, a hope of peace, a hope of security. And we know that hope is absolutely certain that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all working to make it so. Day by day, you make us more like Jesus. We become more conformed to the likeness of our elder brother. And we ask that you'll continue to do that in us. Work it through so that the hope burns brighter as our life goes by. Until that day when we hear the trumpet sound and your future becomes complete. Help us all to live with that in view. Because we ask it for your name's sake. Amen.